Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Art Matheson, the president of Memorial Hospital in North Conway, New Hampshire. Memorial Hospital is part of the Maine Health System, the largest integrated healthcare system in Maine. Memorial Hospital is the only member hospital not located in Maine. Art had a first career in the U.S. Army as a Medical Service Corps officer and retired after 20 years as a lieutenant colonel. In this podcast, we talk about his military career, his transition to civilian leadership, and his experiences with the Bon Secours Health System in Virginia, his time as CEO of Copley Hospital in Vermont, and his leadership at Memorial Hospital, and what it's like leading a critical access hospital that is part of a larger healthcare system. I hope you enjoy listening to Art's story, and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Art Matheson. Welcome to the podcast, Art. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Um, so this is going to be fun because you and I are both retired Army Medical Service Corps officers. So I'm interested in kind of maybe the first part of this podcast, talk a little bit about your experience in the military and then where you are today. So what drew you to the military? Well, you know, it's a, it's a great question. And a lot of times people join the military because of some type of family connection, whether it's a father or grandfather. Uh, or other family member, and that that wasn't me. I was looking at something other than college. I, w- I had been in college for a couple of years, was a bit burnt out. I was a resident assistant. I, I played basketball at University of Southern Maine, and I just wanted something out, uh, something else. I was in love with the person who I've now been married to, Jen, for 28 years. And I wanted to be able to break away and get married and be able to support my family. So I I entered the Army uh, as an infantryman. I was enlisted and uh, only did a two-year enlistment, liked it, uh, but wanted to go back to school. So we got out of the Army, went back to University of Maine. I did ROTC, got commissioned um, as a Medical Service Corps officer, and went back in active duty. But as far as mentorship is concerned, it was my first experience as a young soldier. Uh, I was down at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Lucky nice. me, right? Yeah, uh, I've been there. Polk, um, <laughs> for one year until I got out of the Army. And I used to run. I, I got to do physical training PT on my own because I had a 300 uh, APFT. And so my company commander let anybody that got a 300 max PT test, uh, go out and do PT on their own. So I ran with a couple of the lieutenants that were part of a headquarters company. And one of them uh, was the medical service corps officer. And so he told me about the medical service corps and all the opportunities. And actually at that time, believe it or not, this was 1993, he talked about the Baylor program and how that would be something if I was interested in working in hospitals, I could get my master's degree on active duty, a great program, and then work in hospitals for the rest of my career. And so, you know, fast forward, 
I got commissioned at, from the University of Maine and went uh, into the Army um, and, and served a bunch of lieutenant uh, jobs and uh, then uh, went from there to Baylor and did a bunch of hospital jobs that led me uh, to have the experience to get out into the civilian world and to be, uh, to be marketable and be able to get uh, the, the right jobs at the right time uh, to move myself up to where I am today. That's neat. So uh, that's a kind of an unusual story. Uh, were you an 11 Bravo? Just curious, because I was an 11. I, I, was, uh, I was 11 Bravo for a few days until they made me 11 Hotel. So I was a oh, two, right. two, uh, tow gunner, tube launch, okay. optically wire guided missile <laughs> system gunner tank killer nice. For, nice. for a couple of years. Yeah. So, no, was I was a, so, yeah. so that's another common um, uh, theme in our lives. I was an 11 Charlie once upon a time. Oh uh, yeah. So that's uh mortar. 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 Right. Right? Infantry yeah. Mortars, right? yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's a, uh, cool. um, that's fun. So that's kind of unusual. Like uh, uh, just, you know, I mean, uh, the medical service corps to me is kind of like a hidden gem. Like a lot of people I mean, it didn't even like, I didn't, I barely even knew it existed when I was in ROTC, Never mind, you know, yeah. and some of yeah. my, 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 uh, TAC officers gave me a hard time when they found out I, I had branched yeah. that. Um, I know I got uh, the same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so, so you knew, so you, so you came back from the, from your experience as a young enlisted soldier, knowing that this is what you wanted to do, or, or at least thought that was what you wanted to do. Yeah. That that's, you know, that's what, what I thought I, you know, I love being an infantryman um, as far as going to the field uh, with your, your fellow soldiers in training and preparing and and potentially going to combat it if you got got the call. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was looking at something long term. I was I was taught not only look at five years out, 20 years out. I was potentially looking 30, 40 years out. Like, what did I really want to be when I grew up? And uh, being an infantryman, as you know, it, it's really tough uh, on in many different ways. Tough on your body. They they give a lot, especially during this heavy combat period of time uh, that we're in. Now, if I if, if I had to, and and I you know I salute the flag and I, I do what I told, and I would have gone to combat as an infantryman. Fortunately, I was able to get selected in medical service corps, which you know is 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 not very easy to to do and it was you know it's kind of that right place right time and it reminds me to do my part as a more senior person now to coach teach and mentor young professionals as they're moving up because of that that lieutenant ne never would have said anything to me and, and didn't care about me in any way at all i i may have been an infantryman my whole career. And, and that would have been okay because ignorance is bliss. But um, I'm glad that he took the time to talk with me and tell me about a great opportunity, which it certainly was. Yeah. So, so tell me about your early career. And when did you decide, you know, hey, you said uh, you kind of fast forwarded through the, through your right. experience, but, but um, I'm curious, uh, you know, you went in, you came back in as a young lieutenant, uh, young medical service corps officer. At what point did you did you have an idea that that was going to be the, 
a long-term, like you were, you said you were thinking 30 years out, but was that like, yeah. Hey, I'm coming in for 20 years or, or, you know, the balance of the 20 years yeah. that you owed, or were you thinking, you know, pay off my ROTC uh, obligation and then maybe get out and go do something? Yeah. So, uh, unique situation as well. I went in and, uh, I was at 124 Infantry, which is part of uh, 25th ID, the one brigade at Fort Lewis. I went there. I actually was the driver as a specialist, as an E4 enlisted for who is now the brigade commander of the brigade I was going to. His oh, name is, is Colonel Dodd, D-O-D-D. And Colonel Dodd, and I talked on the phone, and he said, well, uh, Lieutenant Matheson, I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, what do you want to do when you come here to my brigade? And I said, I want to be a med platoon leader of, uh, of an inf infantry battalion. Um, and that's what, what I felt like you, you should do as a young lieutenant to really cut your teeth, as I'm sure you agree with me, because you really learn what things are about as a medical <laughs> service officer in the field. And so when I got there, I was brought down to my battalion commander, who then took me in and cuffed me upside the head for talking to the brigade commander. No, not really. But yeah, uh, he was probably wondering, what the heck is the brigade commander calling me about this young lieutenant that's coming to my battalion? Right. Uh, so I went there and you know did a bunch of rotations to JRTC, the, to the National Training Center the, as well, and then out in Yakima, Washington, which is where we do a lot of our training. Uh, never deployed uh, to combat. And... Uh, it wasn't my favorite couple of years. I'll just say that. You know, it was tough. It was yeah. tough work. It was tough being the only medical service corps officer. Um, my fit, my PA physician assistant was, quite frankly, a total pain in the butt. He didn't want to work. He was lazy. <laughs> I had to light him up a couple of times just to get him to do his job. Yeah. And, uh, and that was frustrating. And so after that, I... I interviewed for the airborne forward surgical team that was there at Fort Lewis, uh, the 250th FST forward surgical team, and I was selected to be their XL. Now, that was a pretty cool job. You know, you got to jump out of perfectly good airplanes, get a little bit of extra money, did a bunch of helicopter, rotary wing jumps. Neat. I think my most was I did five jumps in a day, you know, in a helicopter, oh, you just go up, jump, yeah. come down, get back on. And so it was a great experience, but I, I still knew like, I don't want to be long-term and, and I, I know I was physically made to be a, a, a soldier in the field, but I didn't have it in my, my heart and I didn't have it in my brain. Meaning I could carry a 80 pound rock and crush most people in the army for a 12 mile road march. My, my body was just made to do that. But if, if you don't have it in, in your heart, then, then you better go somewhere else and do something different. And I just didn't. I, I, I love my family. I didn't want to be deployed all the time. Uh, although I'm very thankful for all my brothers and sisters that are up on, on you know, that fence, wherever that fence may be, that allow you and me to sleep well at night. I agree. It, it's not something that I, I wanted to, to be deployed for half of my 20-year career away from my family to be to be completely honest. And so after that I went to to Madigan Army Medical Center as the current ops current operations officer 
for the hospital, actually for the region and the hospital. You know, they're all in the same building at that time. Right. And, and I was a, a first lieutenant at that time. And the troop commander of the hospital, Lieutenant Colonel, came into my office one day and he said, you know, my, my captain that was supposed to take command of Charlie Company, uh, well, he, he had some issues and, and I, need a, I need a company commander. And I was about ready to get out of the Army at that point okay. in time. And so you, I was you, had, a, you had thought about leaving. You weren't, you weren't going to yeah. say, okay. All right. Yeah, because I was like, you know, I, I'm just not, I'm not loving it. I'm not, yeah. I'm not enjoying it. And so I was about ready to be promoted to captain. And so I said, ah, company command, I'm already here. Haven't really gotten really any good offers. Uh, I had a job managing a big warehouse and the night shift at Cardinal Health. And I was in, in Denver, which I, I liked. I liked the Denver area, but mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, I'm not going to make any more money. Um, maybe a little bit less because benefits aren't as good. And I was like, well, why don't I just stay in a couple more years and do the, the company command? So I did company command for, you know, a 600 person company of, uh, you know, soldiers and physicians and nurses um, and medics and many other specialties. And I had a great first sergeant who was from uh, Bronx, New York, Sergeant uh, First Sergeant Bryceland. He was uh, tougher than wood, woodpecker lips. He was the first sergeant of first sergeants. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? He held our soldiers accountable. He taught me uh, so much on, on how to be a leader. And uh, we really had a great two years, two, two of my best, best years of just connecting with a ton of different people in my company in making a difference, I felt like. And so I was getting close to getting done with company command. I'm like, what the, what the heck am I going to do? And, you know, I thought about Baylor, but I was still a little junior. Yeah. Um, although I completed company command, but I hadn't gone to the officer advanced course yet. And so one of my best buddies, whose name is Mark Potter, he retired as a, as a uh, GI physician, um, as a lieutenant colonel. We kind of grew up together at Fort Lewis, trained and raced triathlons together and did the all-army team together. And we still talk these days. He's a a great guy. He had gone to Fort Irwin, (laughs) California. And I laugh because who would have thought I I had Fort Polk and Fort Irwin um, at two places I was stationed. For people who have not been in the Army, those are like, I mean... God love both of them, but they're like two of the least preferred assignments because they're super isolated. What is it? Fort Irwin's like out in the middle of the desert. It's like one no. road in, it's like 20 miles long, you know, yeah. and literally yeah. nothing on either side of the road. I mean, it's just, and Fort Polk, I was there for two years. It's, it's very small. <laughs> very small. It's a big, both- big, big facility, but small town. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, I just have to say, I love my wife and, and still thank her. <laughs> for sticking by me at, because we were going to those two isolated locations. Although we did have Fort Lewis two times for a total Pretty of nice. about six yeah. years. So you give and take, right? Yeah. Like any organization, you, you, you give and take. And so Mark Potter was, uh, Dr. Potter was the primary care chief um, at the hospital at Fort Irwin. And so he talked to the deputy commander for administration, as you know, is the chief operating officer of military hospitals. And I didn't have Baylor yet. 
but they had a slot for a 70 alpha, a, a hospital administrator. And the, the deputy commander for administration, the COO said, I don't care if he's got bail or not. Does he, you know, does he work hard? Does he learn? Will he get after it? All, and then all of the above, I hope for, for Art Matheson, at least I thought so at that time. And, and so we moved to Fort Irwin and uh, I was there for two years. On my second year there, I applied uh, for the Baylor program and got accepted. And that really, as you know, locked me in probably for my career. Um, not exactly. I could have gotten out afterwards, but you know, at that point of being in double-digit years in the mid-teens, it wouldn't have been the probably the smartest thing to do. So I left Fort Irwin. I went to uh, the didactic year for Baylor. And then my second year, I was going to someplace in the States. And instead, I got diverted to Seoul, Korea. To do your to, uh, residency? To do my residency, oh, which wow. I, okay. at first, I was, I was really frustrated that at the last minute, the Army had sent me to a place I didn't want to go. And then when I got there, uh, I realized that it was a blessing in disguise and it was a great three years, actually, not two for because we extended a year uh, for my family and I and me, you know, being out of Baylor, doing my my first uh, real post Baylor hospital administration uh, job. Yeah. So our, just for folks who aren't are, are listening, but aren't familiar, Army Baylor is a Masters of Healthcare Administration. Now it's a MHA and MBA program. So a lot of medical service corps officers get, and it's run by the run by the army. Um, right. but, but the degree it comes from Baylor. Just so, I, yep. You and I yeah. know that. I just want to. <laughs> no, 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 please. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta take the the army out of the stuff I'm talking about for uh, sure. And no what's problem. cool about I think what's unique about, or not quite unique, but unusual about Army Baylor is you do a year didactic where you do all your coursework and then your second year you go off and do uh, an administrative residency was what you were talking about doing in, in exactly. Yeah, exactly. In, in the didactic year, the, the nice thing for us is, you know, I was a senior captain at that point in time and my focus, my sole job was to, to do well in that didactic year. I think it's 60 credits, at least it was then, which is, for one year is pretty Intense. pretty heavy yeah. year, right? Um, and but that was my job, and I, I think for most of us that have been in the army as long as we had, which is somewhere between probably eight plus years in the army, most of us were ten plus. It was challenging, but it wasn't like being deployed or being in a really tough, demanding job. For me, it was sort of taking a knee a little bit. As far as uh, being able to spend more time with family, certainly studied a, a decent amount, but I enjoyed my didactic year. And then, and then the year that you have uh, at your your administrative residency, I mean, basically you learn and rotate throughout. And, and I know, I know you know this, Mark, but for the listeners, you get to rotate through all parts of of the hospital and spend time with subject matter experts in each department of the hospital and then during that year as well you're writing essentially your thesis that uh, at the end of the year gets reviewed and 
gets approved or denied, typically approved if you do well. Mine got approved, thankfully, and then I was uh, was able to graduate and then actually fill a bona fide healthcare administration position at the hospital, which I then did for two years. Neat. So, yeah. so you made this transition from uh, the field side of, so one of the neat things about being a medical service corps officer, say, unlike say an infantry officer for the most part is, you know, if you're right. an infantry officer, you're going to stay in infantry units pretty much the whole, your whole career. Whereas a medical service, you can kind of move around, go back and forth or, or switch yep. focus from, from exactly. field units to more uh, hospital based units, which is, which is neat. So you, so you had said you were kind of burned out from the field experience. You did, you did some time. Did you kind of find yourself at that point? Did you feel like that, you know, this was something that spoke to you in a way that maybe the the field experience hadn't? Yeah, I, I think so. I, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, even though way back in 93, I talked to that healthcare administrator, uh, first lieutenant. No, I think I was struggling a bit with confidence at, 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 you know, the early parts of my adult life on, you know, what did I have, what it, what it took to, to get selected for Baylor? Well, you know, what, what was I smart enough? Cause I was, you know, you sit in the room, you go in there and you're like, wow, there's a lot of smart freaking people around <laughs> me right now, you know, and it's, yeah. it's a little, it's a little, uh, daunting. And, and it was a matter of me kind of finding myself and finding my strengths um, as a leader and, and realizing that, that uh, what I was good at and what I was maybe not so, so strong at and becoming better at those areas that I, I had some weaknesses in and sustaining my strengths. And I think part of it, too, is in something that I, I talked about it earlier today, interviewing a nurse practitioner for primary care a provider position is talking about leadership and the importance of it and how, how important it is to me. And I think really that the jobs um, at Fort Irwin and then at, at the hospital in Korea after I was done with, with my administrative residency started to, I, I started to grow into who I was going to be. And uh, Luke, Colonel Joel Saint, who's a, F, a family practice physician, uh, was a range, uh, you know, an infantry ranger uh, before he went to med, me, uh, medical school, came in to command of the hospital when I went into my, my position um, at the, the hospital, the one two one at that time, uh, now Allgood, um, it, it's called now, but uh, Allgood Community Hospital, who I also worked for, by the way. Uh, before he went to combat and his helicopter was shot down. So I, I got to work for some real leaders. And I remember the first day after Colonel Jola Saint uh, took command, you know, I was at his uh, change of command ceremony and took over the hospital and I was walking. He was like, well, who are you? And I was a major at that young major. He said, Oh, you're, I said, Oh, I'm, I'm a blah, blah, blah. And he said, you're a Baylor grad. And I said, yeah, yes, sir. And he's like, uh, well, you guys have helped me out a lot over the years or something like that. Like, so he, so it was like automatic respect mm-hmm. from a physician, somebody with a ranger tab that was an infantryman that, Oh, you're a Bailey grad. Okay. Well, you and I are going to, we're going to be connecting often. And really what I became, 
I, I was the chief of clinical services division, but really what I was is either the, you know, the executive officer of the hospital or the deputy chief of staff to, to, I, I reported to the chief medical officer and to Colonel Jolisaint, the commander, the CEO of the, the hospital. Um, but really I, I sort of reported to the COO. <laughs> At least that's what he right. told me. <laughs> but but that's really so I was in all the meetings I was at morning report uh with with all the you know the highest ranking most senior people and I was the most junior person so whenever anything came up that none of the senior folks wanted to do they all turned their heads and pointed to art to me <laughs> yeah. to, to get it done right and got it done and right. so um Although at times I, I did I, I did feel like the whipping boy, you yeah. know, the guy that got the coffee for the more senior people. We always joke about that. Um, they were they were good leaders. They taught me a lot. And there's nothing like learning when you're doing. Right. And that's how I, I and most of us I think learn the best is you can tell me all day long how to do something, but and I can kind of get it. You can show me pictures, you could show me a video and it makes more sense. But if I actually do it and then do it again and then do it again, then I get it. And, uh, and that's really where I cut my teeth, I think, is, you know, a mid-level uh, leader starting to move up to more senior level and learning what, what it meant to be a field grade officer or a, a senior leader, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even just uh, you know, you're, you're we're laughing about uh, the you're you're being the whipping boy, but I mean, but that's a that's a great opportunity, right? To be the lowest ranking yeah. guy in the highest ranking room is actually kind of a cool opportunity, and a lot of those those kind of maybe unpleasant jobs are actually great learning experiences. It is. It is. I mean, I can still remember, you know, we would get different. Uh, you know, we would get congressionals coming in, right? People that something didn't go well basically a complaint by a, a patient it would then they'd send it through their congress man or woman of their state or even to the president of the united states and that it would come to us i'd write the responses for colonel joel saying well come to find out his undergrad was english he was an english made so of course <laughs> he put the hammer down but i still think of after hours one time we were we had to get one done and I ran from my on-post housing because I wanted to get a run in. It was dark out to the hospital to link up with him on a weekend to finalize a response to a, a letter uh, to a complaint of something that occurred and what we had done to uh, mitigate whatever, if there was a mistake that was made or not, I can't recall. And having him go over and, and mentor me on proper English or, you know, contacts, et cetera, of, of the letter I was writing. I mean, a small thing, but it's funny the things that, that stick with you. And I feel like just, just a small thing, but because of that, I became better at written communication throughout my career because he was such a stickler, um, never got something past him first time. And I was like, yeah. God, I'm, I'm terrible. And uh, <laughs> I, I think I was okay. He was just really good, and he taught me how to be better in, in that and many other things. That's neat. That's neat. Great yeah. mentorship and, and, um, and development, right? 
so you, so that was kind of, you're in your kind of second half of your career, you're moving into that kind of, that was, sounds like that was kind of a transitional period for you. You did get to be uh, chief operating officer of a couple of, of uh, hospitals uh, for yep. the military. So, so what was that like uh, making the transition to that level of, of leadership? Well, it was tough actually, as I'm thinking back to, my first COO, Chief Operating Officer position, because uh, when I got there, I hadn't even, I, I had, I was still, still on leave, permissive TDY. I, I was, I was not yet working. So go to no, try to try to not talk so much military. I was not yet working yet, and my hospital CEO's uh, executive assistant had called, you know, called me and asked if I could come in for a meeting. And so I was like, well, that's weird. I, my household goods hadn't arrived. You know, it was, uh, we, we just had arrived there. And so I, I got on my uniform, no problem. You know, you want me to come in? That's what the boss wants. I'm coming in. And I went in and, and the, basically the next level CEO that was my, my CEO's boss was also at this meeting. So I met him and I, and I didn't know what to think. Like, why am I with the, the, my lieutenant colonel and then now the full bird colonel? My boss's boss was there. So we sat down and the, the, my boss's boss said, okay, uh, lieutenant colonel so-and-so, you're relieved of command. Art or, or Major Matheson, you're interim CEO commander of the, of the hospital. Oh, wow. <laughs> And you haven't even unpacked your house yet. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't oh, plan on being right. in uniform for at least another week uh -huh. or longer. Oh. And so at that point, I don't think my, and, and the, the crazy thing is I, I, I was friends with my hospital CEO. I, I had served with, with him previously, and it was a matter of he didn't do anything illegal, immoral, unjust. He had just lost the confidence of his boss, and then the, the two-star to continue to lead the organization. He was beloved by a lot of those staff at that, that organization, and I had to go down and bring most of them together and inform them of what had just occurred. There was a lot of tears. There was a lot of, who the heck are you? Uh, it, it was... It was, I, I get chills just thinking about it right now, because at that point in time, I just really, to be quite frank, wanted to find a hole to crawl in yeah. and not, not, not leave it, it, right. initially. And then once I got past the shock and awe of something that, you know, you don't see this happen. This doesn't happen. It very doesn't often. happen very often. Yeah. It's and, and I don't think it happens very often on the civilian side as well. And, and in the way it happened, probably the best way, might as well just rip the Band-Aid completely off instead of making ripping it slowly. And so, yeah, so that was a learning experience, a leadership opportunity. And then it was like, okay, you know, I was taught as an, as an infantryman. I was taught as a young soldier, when in charge, be in charge. And that's what I did my best at, at doing. And what eventually happened is they actually brought in a more senior person to then be more of the long-term interim commander, 
which I was completely happy with because I had never even been a chief operating officer yet. Right, right. Right. right? So I was chief operating officer and hospital CEO simultaneously for a handful of weeks, only a few. And then a more senior person uh, came in who was very good, very competent, very successful person in the military and now on the civilian side because we we track each other. And and, uh, I got along with him well. I agreed with most things that, uh, that his vision on how to run an organization and and then we we worked together on running that organization for several months and then the permanent commander or ceo of the hospital was selected and came in later that summer wow what a interesting yeah. experience i mean a, a real trial by fire for your first uh coo kind of role what did you yeah, learn from that process? What did you learn from that unique experience that you've kind of carried forward, do you think? Well, I, I learned a lot. I, sure. I, 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 gosh, it's almost like it's, I learned so many things, it's, it's hard to pinpoint it. But one, one thing I, I learned really quickly that I don't, I, I don't know if you can get it young. And I was thinking about, you know, this this discussion we would have today and looking at the questions, I, I think when it comes to emotional intelligence and, and being a leader and being calm under, under very stressful situations, there's usually a reason why, you know, the CEOs and the senior people of the hospital are 22 years old. Because a lot of that with emotional intelligence comes with experience. Yeah, I think. And as smart as you are, it, without experience, it's hard to be able to really synthesize what that means, what you know it means, what I know it means, and how to lead the, the right way. The balance of pushing your staff appropriately, respectfully, holding them to standard, being calm, knowing when to Pull, pull the trigger on something or when not to, and uh, being somebody that your, your staff respect, but, but also know that, that you're going to move the organization forward for the greater good of your community, your patients, and, and the greater good of all that work there. And so I think that's one of the things I learned about at that job from the permanent a uh, hospital CEO because I was still relatively young and I was relatively young to be a COO of an army facility at that point. Young, maybe not so much in age, but just in my career progression, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I did one job essentially after Baylor and then I went to be a COO. And, you know, sometimes I was just fired up with things and I'd come in, I'm like, hey, sir, this is what I think we need to do. And then he'd be like, Oh, slow down there, big fella. <laughs> and, and, and he said, well, let's, let's step back. Let's take the emotion out of it. Yeah. Let's look at this objectively. And I was just a lean forward in the foxhole, you know, my infantry days, let's move, let's go. I know what to do. And I didn't always know what to do. I thought yes. I did, yeah. but I didn't always. And so I think that's where I really made that step from 
to, to become a, a, a real, not perfect, but a real senior leader because of the mentorship of my hospital CEO at that Army facility, teaching me things that I just didn't have in my tool bag before that. Wow. Neat. Soft skills, I would say, if yeah. you would. Right? Yeah. Can't always put your finger on them, but you know they're there. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean that's the the emotional intelligence you're talking about, like the bot your boss saying, "Hey, let's let's pause, let's think about it a little bit, let's." Right. Yeah, it's right. The, the the solution isn't always the most direct or the right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. It's not always uh, you know the straightest line. Yeah. And and you know you you hear people use the term a linear thinker, right? You can't always be, think that way. And, and sometimes you need to think I'm going straight and then I'm going to take a hard left and I can't see around that corner, <laughs> but I'm still going that way. And this is why. And also, you know, I, I think that you don't want to be the boy that cried wolf either. Like you don't want to be the guy or gal that every little thing that happens in your hospital, you get bent out of shape about. Or every little thing that permeates up, like so-and-so said this about you, and so-and-so was upset that you made this change, and so-and-so, and you're like, what? You know, and get excited all the time, because there's like 50 things in a day like that that happen at where I'm at now, where I was previous, every place. Right. You, you, you pick your, your spots on the things that are most important, you compartmentalize when you need to, and you move your organization forward the best that you can and when you do show emotion then you do it sparingly you do it still professionally but it's okay that people see that you are not a robot right and and, but if you do it all the time then it doesn't mean anything and they just think that you know you don't have that that emotional intelligence that a senior leader should have so you took your family after you were at, so that was, you were at Aberdeen Proving Ground down in Maryland. Um, right. You took your family out to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. So you've been all over the country, uh, both all coasts and yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yep. So, uh, and you went to be again, chief operating officer of Munson Army Health Center, uh, which was your kind of your, your, your final role in the army. So talk a little bit about, I mean, so this is a significantly larger organization. Talk a yeah. little bit about what does, a, what does a COO do in an Army facility? What's the responsibility? Yeah, so, so typically, and it's not, it's certainly there are a lot of similarities from, to, to civilian uh, facilities, but there are differences. But uh, typically, uh, Deputy Commander for Administration or Chief Operating Officer of an Army facility has uh, a majority of the administrative uh, departments. So, you know, basically, you know, a medical supply, logistics, uh, facilities, finance, uh, patient records, uh, IT, and, you know, several others, depending on the size of the organization, you have a lot of you know, those non-clinical areas of the hospital. And it's, a, it's, it's quite similar for one army uh, facility, one army facility to another, but it's never exactly the same because not one hospital never looks the same as another on the civilian side and, and also on the military, as you know. Yeah, yeah. 
So you did almost three years out there in Kansas. Yep. And that was the job you retired out of. So I'm curious, what was the, I mean, so you were moving along. I mean, two, two COO jobs is, a, is, a, is, you know, from the outside, from a medical service core career. Those are, those are rich jobs that are yeah. clearly you are marked to keep go, going up because they're, because they're board selected. You don't just get to go. You, you know, somebody, some, uh, an outside board decides, yes, this person is the most, um, qualified for that role. So, so you'd been selected twice for DCA for, for COO roles. So you had, you clearly had an upward trajectory. What made you decide now's the time to, to pull the, pull the shoot as, as we might say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it was not an easy decision. I, I think for me, it was get out at 20 settle down, which I didn't quite settle down like I thought I, I was, but you, you know, you don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately. Maybe it's good that I didn't have a crystal ball. I, I'm not sure, but because because if I had a crystal ball, maybe I would have stayed in and maybe that was not, would have not been the best thing for me, for my, my, for my personal side, meaning for my family. And so if you average out my enlisted time, my officer time, uh, moving back and forth, we moved every on average of every 1.8 years. You, I mean, you know, as you become, right. especially right. when you become an officer and you move up the ranks and you become more senior, it's unlikely you're going to stay, particularly in those board selected positions, more than two years. Right. I was lucky to go as long as I did in the, my last position. It just uh, worked out that way. I was fortunate that they let me stay that long. And so, yeah, my career was going, was going well. I, I had uh, been promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and, you know, I was looking maybe in the near future to maybe get a small, uh, to, to become a, a, a commander or CEO of a small facility was something that I would have looked towards soon thereafter. Yeah. Uh, so, so settling down, but then for career, it was kind of like get out at 20 is the way I looked at it and start my second career and get it going. I'm 42, 43 years old. You know, I can work another 20 years, no problem, or stay in for the long haul, yeah. you know, for late, you know, up to 30 years in the army. And then I could still get out, but think, you know, if you're, you're, you're mid fifties, maybe a little less marketable. Maybe not, but that's kind of my mindset at that point in time. But I can tell you, it was it was scary getting out. It was one of the scarier times in my life. <laughs> why, why was it scary? Why was it scary? Well, uh, I don't know. I think it's probably the competitiveness in me, okay, and maybe a little bit of of self self doubt on. Okay, I I I was good in this smaller pool. Of you know, but it, can I compete on the outside? Being someone that you know always played sports and was very competitive, and just that's how I, that's how I was grown, and then just kind of overcoming uh, some of the myths of of our our uh, civilian uh, healthcare brothers and sisters and what they think about us military guys. So you were worried it, about that, or or you actually it saw real. it? Yeah. It, I was worried about it and it was, and it was definitely real. And, uh, and maybe we need to do a better job at educating and communicating 
what we do on the inside when, when we interview. And I certainly tried to do that. And, and Hollywood probably doesn't help us too much right. with that, with <laughs> movies. Right. I mean, I was in an interview for a job that, that I did get. And I don't know, one of the senior, senior leaders said, so, and he was serious as a heart attack. At first, I thought he was pulling my leg. Just joking. He said, so you probably just, as an army guy, just sit around and tell people what to do at your hospital. As I, as I kind of waited and he was serious. Yeah. And I realized that and I said, no, no, I actually no, that that's not what I do. Uh, people are people. And I tried to go with, we, we just wear different uniforms than, than the civilian side. But, you know, we have joint commission that uh, uh, credits our hospital. Uh, we, we have a lot of civilians that more so now because of the wars that work um, at our hospitals, whether docs or nurses or other specialists. And, you know, you're trying to educate and that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not just ordering people around. Um, not like what you see on the movie Full Metal Jacket or Platoon. That would not work very well leading the people that I've been leading. I would not last very long, nor should I, if I led that way. And yeah. so, yeah, it was, it was a little bit tough. Yeah. So you landed in, um, you landed in Virginia initially with uh, Bon Secours uh, Health yep. System. Yep. So how did that come about? How did you decide Virginia? Because I know, uh, I was looking at your background, you're from, you're originally from, what, born in Portland, Maine, yep. and uh, not, not uh, Oregon, Portland, Maine, and, and, and kind of grew up in Bangor, Banga. Yep. Um, yep. Right? <laughs> yep. Right. So how did you, how did you uh, decide to settle, at least initially, in, um, in Virginia? Well, to be completely honest, it was the one job offer that I got. Oh, okay. It was, it was... What the, I would say the one that was a, a meaningful job offer off, offer that I received, and, and Bon Secours is, is a reputable, really solid uh, health system, and and it, it just felt like it was it was meant to be, and so yeah. yeah, I mean I applied so many different places, and you know maybe I wasn't the best interviewer. Maybe I was I struggled a bit with the, the transition, the the language, the vernacular, all of those things. Certainly, yeah. um, it's it was not the easiest transition uh, for me. Even when I got there and started, I'd go to Starbucks on my way to work, and there would be you know army guys or air force people, and I was I just wanted to stop and hang out with them because <laughs> I, I I missed them. Right, I, right. I, I missed that culture that I was a part of. And, and so I, I would say there was a, definitely a several months of, of me struggling a bit um, in, a, in a very different culture than what I was used to. Yeah. So, I mean, we were joking a minute ago that the assumption a lot of civilians have is that everybody in the military acts like a, like a extra out of full metal jacket. But, but in fact, yeah. it's really not like that. I mean, sometimes it is, but sure. 90% of the time it's not. Right. Um, and so what was the, so what was the big culture change given that, you know, you did have to learn, like we talked about learning a lot of emotional intelligence and all that kind of, what was the big uh, shift for you getting, going from the military culture to the civilian culture? 
Well, one thing that I realized that was, I, I, I'll go to the, the positive side of this, that I realized was a good thing going to Bon Secours is it was a relatively structured organization and pretty regimented uh, as, a, as a Catholic organization. And, and that, that played well for me. Uh, because there were some similarities just as, as the to the military as far as structure values were not unlike our values uh, in the army and so that was a that was a good thing i think one of the things that was tough for me and i know you you've you've uh i'm sure you've read about it or heard about it is a lot of times getting out of the military you've got to be ready to to take a step lower than what you were when you were in. And so I, that's what I had to do is I had to, I took basically one step. I, I reported directly to the chief operating officer of the medical group in Southeastern uh, Virginia, Suffolk, Norfolk area. And so that was a little, that was humbling for me. Like I had just really, as you had talked about, I was, I was on a great trajectory, two board selected positions in a row, you know, it's, but sometimes it's good to be humbled, my mother would say. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it teaches you things probably more, you know, you always hear you, you learn more from a loss than you do from a win as a sports analogy. Mm-hmm. And I think this was definitely an opportunity where I self-reflected and said, okay, I get this, but. Am I, what am I doing right? What am I doing not so right? And what do I, what do I have to do to change to, to take to when my boss gets promoted or goes somewhere else, how do I take his position? How am I prepared to, to be the next COO? And that's how I went about it. And after about nine months, there was, I think at the medical group, we had five or five or six directors of operation and we each ran a portion of the medical group and i was selected after eight nine months by my chief operating officer to basically become the executive director still reporting to him and then the ceo of the medical group but all the directors were going to report to me because he was covering the entire the entire state okay Uh, and so it was just too much um, like any, like a lot of systems, a lot of times you're not going to make the jump right from, especially after nine, nine months, eight, nine months, right to a COO position. But basically that was kind of the middle spot for my next promotion to become the Southern chief operating officer of the medical group. Um, so I felt pretty good about that, but then came an opportunity in Vermont, which I yeah. took advantage. Yeah. So you, uh, uh, you, your next step was to actually head up to Morrisville, Vermont, yeah, where you were the chief operating officer initially of Copley Hospital, and then not not for very long, or not very long after, you became the the CEO. So what yep. drew you up to Ver, uh, from Virginia to Vermont? You were doing well, yeah, promoted again, and and uh, but a big change, right, from from Virginia to Vermont. Yeah. So uh, absolutely, and. And I wasn't, I wasn't happy for some reason. And, and I'm pretty happy now, I have to say. And I was happy once I got up, up to Vermont uh, in, in my, my positions there. I wanted to be 
I wanted to get back to chief operating officer position and I, I wanted to get back to a hospital. I was at a medical group, which for Bon Secours and for those listening, you know, a medical group typically is a, a group of physicians, uh, nurse practitioners and PAs and other healthcare professionals that that see outpatient clinic and then also often work at one of the, the hospitals in the system. So we had 50 practice locations and three hospitals that we supported as a medical group. So I, I, I didn't work at a hospital. I worked at an office away from everything clinical and everything hospital related. So I was a total admin person, 100% and didn't get to interact with the, the clinical staff and the people that working where the rubber meets the road, taking care of patients. And that's what I enjoyed. I mean, I'm not a clinical person, but where I'm at now, when I was in Vermont at my army organizations, I got a chance to interact and be part of that really special uh, process of providing care to people and helping them live healthier lives. And it's really a calling. And I, I get a lot uh, from doing that. A lot of pleasure, uh, a lot of gratification, because if you've ever been sick, which I have, most have, you, you know how good it is to be healthy. And when yeah. you help somebody get healthy and they say thank you, it means a lot. And so I miss that. And I wanted to be a COO and I wanted to be a CEO. My goal getting out of the Army was five years I wanted to be a CEO. I, I okay. felt like it was a, a stretch goal. It was lofty at the time. I didn't even have a job yet out of the army. Right, right. But that was my goal. We're taught to set goals. I set a goal. I have to tell you, you know, I'm a, I think you are too. I'm a fellow of uh, American College of Healthcare Executives. All three of my jobs I got from ACHE's job site. Nice. All three. All right. So I just was looking, saw the job at Bon Secours, applied. And then I was, I, what I did is you set up your criteria on, on the job site for ACHE and then it, it emails you the, the, the jobs that, that match your skill set, providing you, you set that up right within the job site. And so this job in Vermont was emailed to me by the job site. And I looked at it and I had to go onto MapQuest to find out where, you know, Morrisville, Vermont was where Stowe was. And I said, all right, let's try it. And so I went and applied and got selected to be their next chief operating officer. And soon after I got there, the CEO announced that he was going to retire in like seven or eight months. Okay. So did you, um, uh, were you brought in as a part of a deliberate succession plan or was it you had to show your, your abilities and compete for it? Yeah, so I was not brought in as the successor for the, the outgoing uh, CEO. I think that board members and others were thinking about that as I was, as I was coming in. Would I have that potential? Uh, but I, it was not part of the plan. So they uh, did a national recruit, recruitment effort through one of the firms. And I competed against several other candidates uh, for the position you know they got it down to six then they got it down to three 
And then I was, I was finally selected after a several month process. As you know, it, it, it takes several months when you do a national search for a new yeah. hospital CEO. So it was a bit painful. They're never easy, but you know, it, it, it's worth it in the end and it was worth it. And uh, I was glad I got that opportunity. So what was it like coming back to Northern New England after all that time away? I mean, it was about 20 years you were gone. Yeah, I never thought I'd come back to, to the Northeast because I, um, I didn't like winters uh, before. <laughs> I, I, I'm a basketball player. Early in my years, I was a basketball player and uh, I was not an outdoor guy. And it was about an opportunity and it was also about getting my family back. My, you know, my wife really wanted to come back to New England. She loved the four seasons. She appreciated it. I did not have that appreciation until I got to Vermont. My kids picked up uh, Nordic skiing. Yeah. Every high school in Vermont has Nordic ski teams. Okay. And I met an army guy that worked at one of the ski shops. We became friends. He got me into Nordic skiing. I took lessons and I never want to leave the Northeast yeah. now. Yeah. I love it. I love snow. <laughs> yeah. and, and so that's what you, people ask me, well, what, do you, what do you do to deal with the winners? See, you get a winter hobby right. and then you mind it right. uh, at all. You, you right. do snow. You look forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. happy when it's going outside. Right. Yeah. 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 You got so, yeah. yeah, to find a way to get outside or it's a long couple of months. If you <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, long, several months, depending right. on the way. Yeah. 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 Um, well, tell me a little bit about, tell us a little bit about Copley hospital. You know, how big yeah. was it? What, you know, what kind of services did it offer? What role does it play in, in the community and kind of how does it fit in the overall medical system there? Yeah, so it, it was rather unique and something that didn't really register with me. Not that I wouldn't have taken the position because I know I would have regardless, uh, but it didn't register me with me in my mind that the setup as far as the specialties at Copley and what it didn't have. And, and what it didn't have, which I have here at Memorial, is it didn't have primary care as part of the hospital. So primary care was part of a FQHC, a federally qualified health center. And 10 years prior or more, 10 to 12 years prior to my arrival, the primary care broke away from the hospital and became an FQHC because of reimbursement. Uh, rural health centers, FQHCs, are reimbursed at a higher rate than if you are not an FQHC. That's basically you know, the most, you know, the basic I can, I can say. It. And you, you get more reimbursement for each patient you're seeing. And the reason why the federal government does that is most primary care probably wouldn't be able to make ends meet if they didn't because they're in a rural center. You need a doc. You might not have enough patients that would really justify that physician, but if you don't have that physician, people have to drive 50 miles to see somebody for primary care, yeah. and that's not a good thing. And so there's good reason why you have these federally qualified health centers, but it was tough not having it as part of, of the hospital. So it was a separate organization, separate CEO. Um, we, we did our best to work together. We got a majority of their referrals. But, but over the years, 
at times there were there were some struggles between leadership, I think, uh, between the two organizations, which happens. And so that was a challenge at, at times. And, uh, you know, one organization has a vision of the direction they're going and our organization had our vision and they don't necessarily always align, mm-hmm. um, which but is yet, natural. But you would be in that, given that situation, you're very interdependent. We are. At the same time, yeah. right? So trying to paddle in two different directions and you're in the same canoe, right? Absolutely. So. We, we, and so we had to, and for, to, to, you know, I'm using quotations to do the right thing, right. which we both wanted to do the right thing, which is provide great care for our community. Um, we had to align and we, we worked hard at doing that. I, I feel it, and it's nothing personal, right? Between two organizations, but that's not the easiest thing to always do because if you have it all part of your hospital, everybody's in that one canoe going in one direction. And so we're trying to keep our, both our canoes beside each other going in the same direction. And once in a while, my canoe might veer off and, and they'd say, Hey, bring it back. And so I'd say, ah, okay, bring it back. And then we'd be aligned again. And so, yeah, so that was a a bit challenging, um, but that's the way it was. And, and we did uh, as well as we could. And I think we did a pretty good job at providing cares to organizations with the same patients. And that's what we always said. We have the same patients here. So how do we come together and work together? And we work together on many different things. We did a pretty good job. Uh, the, the other thing that we had, well, I, I wouldn't say the other thing because uh, the, what Copley was essentially was a very strong surgical hospital. And, and had a number of specialties, general surgery, uh, u- urology, orthopedics, and, and other specialties, OBGYN. But really where it was very strong was orthopedics. So critical access hospital, 25 beds. We had approximately 375 full-time equivalent uh, staff at the, at the organization, at the hospital, but we had six orthopedic surgeons. Um, we covered all the modalities except for spine at our hospital. And for a small hospital to, to have that kind of orthopedic program, uh, we also had seven orthopedic APPs, so nurse practitioners and PAs. That was kind of the heartbeat of our hospital. And we did a lot of total joints, total hip total knee, total shoulder. And uh, we, I, I felt like we were one of the best orthopedic organizations uh, in Northern New England. I mean, we could, we could compete with anybody. Our surgeons were and still are outstanding that, that are there at Copley Hospital. And, and they really helped the hospital be successful. So you transitioned from COO to CEO. Yep. Uh, what surprised you about that role? So that was your goal. I think you yeah. did. You got there in maybe three years, maybe instead of five. Yeah, yeah, right, nice. yeah, nice. Okay. Yeah, it was nice. Good, good army, yeah. good army try. Uh, good, good. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, so, so what what surprised you about? You know, you you had your eyes on it. You were thinking about it, but what was surprising about the transition? Well, as an independent hospital CEO, literally everything falls on your shoulders, right? And 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 that was 
it's not like I was, I was surprised at that. I guess I was surprised at the amount of what was put on my shoulders. Right. So, you know, I hadn't been at a civilian hospital or hospitals or, or healthcare organizations very long. Uh, so I was still kind of green in that aspect. And, you know, when, when as an independent hospital CEO, you're, you're said, okay, well, what, when are we going to start our strategic planning for the next three years? Uh, when are we going to start our community health needs assessment that needs to be done because IRS says it needs to be done by this date and then you need to present it to the board and get board approval and on and on and on and oh you have to go present your budget to the Green Mountain Care Board. What's the Green Mountain Care Board? Well that's the five person regulatory board assigned by the governor that basically approves your budget and what your rate increase will be et cetera et cetera. You mean we're 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 gonna be regulated like that from the state? Yes, you are. Okay. Well, geez, my learning curve has just increased dramatically. And so, yeah, I think uh, a lot the the magnitude of different things that I hadn't done before that first year was a huge learning curve in, in a number of those areas that I I never dealt with. Uh, the one that was probably the toughest that I learned the most from is the regulatory state requirements were pretty immense in the state of Vermont. And I don't think anybody that knows about the state of Vermont well would argue with that. It's just uh, a fact. And I learned uh, fairly quickly. Um, I I felt like I was, you know, uh, drinking from a a fire hose at times. And it it was... uh, a bit overwhelming and daunting and humbling, but I had good people around me and I was taught well enough. If you got good people around, around you, use them, delegate. And I, I tried to keep that in mind. And so, and then thinking instead of a COO, of thinking about a quarter of the organization or a third of the organization, I'm now thinking about the whole organization and making sure my the CMO, chief medical officer, chief nursing officer, and, and chief operating officer are essentially running the day-to-day of the hospital, right? And I'm, over, I'm providing oversight and guidance, but then I'm planning for the next year's budget, the strategic plan, and looking three to five years out, and then everything in between, and, and then trying to meet budget on a monthly basis, and on and on and on. And so, it's just the, the need to be down in the weeds, which as a small hospital CEO, you need to be, but then go to 30,000 foot level at times and then be able to go back and forth and then in the middle at times too, <laughs> right? And so yeah. that's what I learned to do very quickly to, to be successful and really survive uh, in, in a fast-paced healthcare environment that we're in. So you were, you were at Copley almost four years in total. And then you um, transitioned to be the president of Memorial Hospital in in North Conway, New Hampshire. And that's where you are today. So so tell me about the transition. What, how did that opportunity come about? And and why did you choose to do that? My wife and I had spent winter vacation and also some summers 
here in North Conway uh, while we were living in Ver Vermont. And I vaguely remembered North Conway as a young kid when we lived in Portland before we moved up to Bangor. We actually were driving home on the main drag going up through the pass and we went past Memorial Hospital and my wife, Jen, said, oh, that's the, the, the hospital here in North Conway. And I said, yeah, it looks like it. And she said, could, could you work there? And I said, well, they're probably critical access. So probably, yeah, I could. And then that was it. We didn't talk about it anymore. That was like three years ago. And uh, one morning I got an email, kid you not, from ACHE that had the president of Memorial Hospital position posted. And I was drinking coffee and Jen was in the other room and I said, hey, hon, look at it. And she came and looked at the email. She said, eh, well, why don't you take a look at it? Why don't you, you know, email the person? And that's how it started. So obviously, so this is about a, you, you started about a year ago. This, you started this past summer. Uh, right. You've been there about a year. So what was it like walking into your second um, CEO role? What was it like transitioning? So you transitioned from COO to CEO yeah. at Copley. This time you went straight into, well, you're president, but, but still you're the senior, you're the yeah. senior executive. They, so they, they uh, half you know, half the people still, still call me, you know, when they introduce me, this is my CEO or this is the CEO of the hospital. Main health has one, one CEO, uh, Bill Karen, my big boss, but, but essentially it's very, very similar to what I did at Copley you almost can't tell the difference on day to day in working with the board. I think, you know, from a leadership perspective, it was more difficult to start as a COO and then go to CEO at Copley because you were known as the COO and then now they know you. So some, some people, it didn't matter. They respected you. They gave you the, the due respect. They, they worked with you. Others, you know, it, it mattered a little bit more or less. And that's just the way it goes. And so I think here, people knew me as the CEO, as the president of the hospital. They were part of, many were part of the interview process. Most of the leaders were part of the interview process. Most of the, the, the managers, the mid-level leaders. And so that's what they knew me as. And it, and it feels like it was a little bit easier. But one thing that I usually, you know, my, my wife is kind of my barometer on things because she's seen me since I was 20 years old. She knows me better. And what she said, she said a couple of times, she says, I see you being more confident uh, when, when issues come up and you have to make decisions. Not, she said, not that you weren't doing a good job, being yeah. a good wife, building me up. Not that you didn't, weren't doing a good <laughs> job at Copley, she'll yeah. say, but, but she said, I just see more of a calmness with your decisions and, and a confidence because of the experience that you're bringing to Memorial. And, and I would say that, I, that, that she's probably right because I have not seen, I don't know if I've seen anything here for the first time necessarily, mm -hmm. right? I've all, I've just about everything I have done at least one or more times, which is, Again, experience. When you're 22, when I was 25, I was like, experience. That guy's just old. He doesn't know anything. You know, I was cocky. I I knew everything. And then I I in my 30s, I started to realize I didn't know everything. And now I realize 
I don't know that much at all. And that's a good thing because always asking people what they think, you're looking for the best ideas, you usually don't have them. I'm usually not the smartest guy in the room. Almost, I'm almost never the smartest guy in the room, but I'm smart enough to, you, to, to ask questions to the people around me um, that have as much of an invested interest in the success of our hospital and are really smart and, yeah. and provide good input and guidance that I need to make the tough decisions. Yeah. So quick contrast the two organizations, size-wise, mission, pretty similar? How, how, how are they different? Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're pretty uh, similar in the sense of critical access hospital. Uh, so your reimbursement is the same for Medicare uh, patients, for example. As far as the, the, the facility size, relatively similar. As far as the specialties, however, Memor- Memorial has primary care and Memorial has more specialties. So... Copley had a ton of depth surgically, um, but not as much in other areas. Memorial does not have the depth in maybe one particular key service, but has a lot more breadth as far as services. And the reason why, I think the number one reason is being part of Maine Health, Mm -hmm. because we would not have, you know, the specialties that we have at our organization if we weren't part of a larger healthcare team. So I wanted to ask you about that. So, so Copley was an independent facility, but now you're part of a larger system. Maine Health's a pretty good sized system. It's one of the, yep. what are there, there's three systems in Maine? Yeah. And that's, and Maine Health is the largest, I believe. Yep. Yep. It's oh. a little 20, uh, 20,000 employees. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it like uh, uh, moving from an independent facility to a facility that's part of a larger organization? You, you already alluded to the fact that you have more access to specialty providers. What yeah. else, what else, how does that affect your day-to-day uh, work? You know, it's certainly something, Mark, that I thought about whenever you go to another job, you think, okay, what kind of autonomy am I going to have to do what I do uh, to run, run my organization the best that I think uh, I can in, in the right way I think is is best for the organization. So I report to my board here, but I also report to the president of the health system. And he's great. He, he's been doing what I, I'm doing a lot longer than me. And, and he provides good guidance. The positives of that are I have a mentor that I really can go to, an independent hospital, you don't have a, a boss like that, that you can, I can text them and say, Hey, can I, can I run this by you? And you say, call me in 15 minutes and boom, we'll get on. We'll discuss something. I'll get guidance. I'll move on. Very similar in, in that way to the military, very matrixed organization um, as the military is. And so you, I knew that I was going to lose by virtue of being part of a larger team like the army. Uh, like Bon Secours, I was going to lose some autonomy. And I don't want to say that in a, in a negative way. I, it's just the way health systems work. And that's why health systems are successful is because they 
uh, synchronized effort. They standardize. They use economies of scale to save dollars. And, and that's how and why organizations are able to make it uh, in this environment these days is becoming part of a, a larger team. And so, you know, I, I don't make every single decision myself uh, like I made at Copley. And I knew that was coming in. But the great thing that is much that outweighs the, the, the few decisions that I I have to go in and get approval for is being part of a system and having that that support, that top cover. And that really showed more than ever through this pandemic. Oh, yeah. I, I, it would have been much different being an independent hospital. Uh, you know, one thing we were wearing masks throughout our hospitals, I think before most hospitals in America were wearing masks. Um, I think we started wearing masks and people thought we were, we were off our, off our rocker for wearing, you're wearing masks in the hospital. Everyone's wearing a mask. And we said, yeah. And one is we could get the mask to wear. That was, that was the number one. Yeah. That was a challenge, right? We we had the leverage in the the great uh, logistics folks that got after it 24 seven. And so yeah, th- that really showed. But overall, I think the economies of scale that you get in being part of a larger system is just you can't put a price tag to it. Well, you actually can. But, but uh, that, that price tag to be a part of a system is very helpful with us meeting our bottom line uh, on a yearly basis. So you mentioned you have a board. How does that all work? So you have some, I know different systems do it differently. Is there a local board that controls a memorial and then an, another board for a main health board? How does, how does, what's the interaction between, what is the governance structure? That's what I'm trying to say. What is the governance? Yeah, so, so the governance, the, the, the one caveat for, for us right now, because we're the one New Hampshire hospital is all the hospitals in Maine have unified. We are fully integrated, but we are still working through the final stages with the state on on final unification and and so this is public knowledge so we still manage we still have our dollars when you actually do a final unification all the dollars go into one pot right okay we have not yet done that because state of new hampshire is different than than the state of maine is different than any other state in in laws and how things like this occur and you know you got to get the the lawyers involved to help you through it and get us to that final stage. We were going to start working on this with, with uh, the state earlier this year, but then the pandemic hit. So everything got put on hold. And so where, what will happen most likely um, if we look in, in similar to the other hospitals, uh, which you don't completely know yet until we work with the state and figure this out is we, the, the board essentially becomes goes from what what you and I know to be a, a typical hospital board that has full control o- over the, the the governance of the hospital, for example, over the budget, uh, over the strategic plan. They become more of an advisory board, and the, those decisions, like approving the next fiscal year budget, uh, become the responsibility of the main health board 
Now, what I understand and what I've heard after the first year, because Maine Health's a relatively young system, is that uh, people don't see things being a, a whole lot different from the optics of it at their hospitals. So Maine Health, one great thing about them is they're very inclusive with their hospitals. They want feedback. They're very transparent. And it's the, the way you and I would, would want an organization to be. And so it's not like, wow, we have the power at Portland Free Street now and we're taking over. No, they understand the value of their community hospitals and getting their input. And if things make sense, like, hey, this hospital recommended this. That makes sense. What do you guys think? All right, let's make that change, right? That's the right way, the way I would want to lead an organization. And that comes from the senior leaders of the system. And so that's, you know, we haven't done that final unification and look forward to moving forward with that in the future, but that's essentially how it's set up. Maine Health has, has a board. I attend that board meeting. We have a local board member on the Maine Health board. So they have the right structure to be fair uh, across the system. And I think it works well. How do you manage strategically? How does, how, does, how, does, how does strategy get worked out now that you're kind of progressively becoming more part of the system? How do you, you know, how do you look at the future? What do you worry about? I guess, what do you worry about in the future for Memorial? Yeah, I think um, first, one of the great things about being integrated in a health system like we are with Maine Health is, we have strategic planning experts, I'll call them, that this is what they do, is they are, help us put together our strategic plans for the next three years. So we just finished up our three-year strategic plan, but they facilitate the meetings, they set the slides up, we show up, try to give our good ideas and our brain power, but they really help us through it. And man, you really you really can't put a price tag to that because it, it is truly priceless. I always thank them for their work. The, the big things that I worry about first and foremost is we're, we're a people organization. And if you don't have the right skill set, you're not going to be able to care for your community. And it's super competitive out there for most specialties. I mean, a physician of almost any specialty can go just about anywhere he or she wants to go in the country. That's just the bottom line. And so how do you bring them to mm. your hospital right. and what we're asking? That's what we're, we're trying to figure out and doing our best to, to pull people in uh, to Memorial. Uh, another good thing uh, about being part of a system, uh, a lot of the younger generations, they don't want to be one doc in a box all alone by themselves anymore. Um, that's kind of of the past. A lot of these physicians are saying, well, what's my call schedule going to be like? Am I one in three, one in four? And you're like, uh, one in two? Is that going to work? Like, like every other night. <laughs> right. Like every other night, uh, two weeks out of the month, it's not going to be bad. Um, you know, quality of life. And, and can you blame them, right? right. Uh, you only live one life and, and you want to have balance as best as you can. And, and one in two call, yeah, that gets old after a while. I get it. I've seen, I've seen my friends... Uh, go through that and, and it gets to a point where it's not, it's not pretty. So um, that recruitment is, is a really 
tough thing for everybody. It's a combination of salary and benefits, but also, you know, a lot of these people coming in, they want to know what my vision is. And I have these young physicians coming in and surgeons and saying, what do you, what do you want to do with my practice? You know, how, how do you see us moving forward? And, and I think that's great. Um, and those are the questions they should be asking. And so right now we're, we're really in a good place of re- recruiting people of key, you know, key positions. We, we just uh, hired, for example, a upper extremity orthopedic surgeon that's really excited to join uh, our team and uh, a number of other specialties. And I, th- I think it's the feeling that they get when they come into our community, but also when they come into our hospital and when they talk to people. Mm-hmm. People want to be going to a place where they're excited to work most days. We all have a bad day, but most days it's a good place for them to come to work, to be safe, to be respected, and to feel like they're doing something that matters. And that's what we're trying to do here at Memorial and throughout the system. Uh, and that's the way I think it, it should be if you can get there. I mean, it sounds like being part of Maine Health probably helps with that recruiting process as well, because you can provide some of that support yeah. coverage. That, yeah, as yeah, you can to- provide support. We've had providers that have said, you know, well, we've had, I think, one orthopod that we're also recruiting said, well, do you think I could go and work at MMC and pull call there so I could get some of the more complicated cases? And my chief medical officer and I were like, yeah, I think I think we can make that happen. I think they won't, won't mind you pulling some call for them. <laughs> I don't know anybody that's going to mind. You want to take my call for Saturday night? Yeah, yeah, you, yeah no problem. You, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, quality right. of life. But yeah, right. and, and so they like that because you know, there's, there's education, there's collegiality that's important to many of them. There's depth. There's somebody they can call that's like them that they can bounce things off of. They could go work part-time at another hospital in the system that's bigger, that might provide them uh, more professional development than they're going to get regularly at a small hospital. So, yeah, I think, I think what we have at Memorial is we're a great place, great mountains, great waters, uh, you know, places to swim. But we got great shopping, and then we've got the other side of the world, which is a great uh, health system with a tertiary care hospital that can take our higher level patients. Um, and we, we get the best of both worlds here. And, and that's what I saw when I came and interviewed and just, I couldn't pass it up. It was just a great opportunity professionally and, and personally. What does it take to be a successful critical access CEO president? What are the, what are the skills? Somebody's thinking, that's what I, I want to be. I want to be art someday. What is it that, you know, makes a person in your role successful? Wow. Um, Don't like to drink beer because you like to drink beer. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Like to drink beer. Um, No, in in all seriousness, I think, you know, I think that the couple of things, I know one thing that they were looking at here is, uh, leadership. And I, I think everybody has a different leadership style uh, or slightly different, uh, some more different than others. But 
I, I think an organization goes as their top leader goes, right? And so you, you as the, the leader of the, the hospital, it be, you, you can't be timid. Uh, you have to be strong and confident, but not cocky and thinking that you're better than sliced bread. So it's, it's that quiet confidence that we often see in the Army and in certain specialties like our, our special forces uh, folks uh, that are confident, but down to earth, relatable, you know, put your, your pants on just like everybody else, one leg at a time type leader that leads from the front and sets the example, but also holds people accountable on a daily basis. And, 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 and that's what I, I'm, I'm trying to do on a daily basis. Some days I do better than others, I think. But o- overall, I feel like I, I'm doing a pretty, a pretty good job. Um, otherwise, I think my folks would, would tell me and I ask for their feedback. You know, hey, was that right in there? Am I doing the right thing? You've been here 25 years, chief nursing officer. How am I being perceived? Yeah. Uh, is it good or is it bad? Um, so the other thing I think is, you know, aside from leadership, is is building your team as a CEO or president is very critical because you're. I, I'm a firm believer uh, that you're you're only going to be as good as the people that are around you. You cannot do it yourself. I know delegation of all the leadership traits is probably one I struggled with more in my early years of my career because I wanted to do it all. Can't. You got to be able to delegate, let them jump out of the nest and fly or not. Sometimes you got to be willing to do that to allow your senior leaders and other leaders to grow. Uh, and then you teach when, when a teaching opportunity comes. And then the third thing, and there are many more. But in interest of time, the third thing is you better understand the finances of a civilian hospital yeah. and you better get, get uh, coached quickly and understand it well to be successful. Because the number one thing that your boards, as they should, will judge you on is your ability to manage a hospital and its finances. And they should. And I would too, because as my CFO loves to hear from me, no money, no mission. That's just the bottom line. And and you wish you didn't have to focus on that. You wish you could focus on all the other stuff. But if you don't focus on that side, you're not able to support the clinical side, which provides the care to our community and our patients coming through the door. And so I learned very quickly at Copley as a COO and then young CEO from Rasul, our longtime 20-year CFO that, that worked at Copley on what hospital financing and budgeting really means. And he taught me well, and I came here, and I knew the questions to ask on day one. And that was really helpful. When you, uh, so you've talked a little bit about your own leadership. What do you look for when you're hiring a junior leader or, or hiring a leader yourself? So you talked about building a team. When you're, when you're interviewing somebody, what are you looking for when, in terms of their leadership um, style? We were talking about this the other day on, on the, the imperfections of, of hiring and interviewing and hiring people and, and how, it's, how it's, you know, usually you get it right, but not always. And it's, yeah. it's, it's difficult at times. So 
I think what I'm looking at, I, I think I'm looking at the things that, that you see that stand out, but maybe the things that aren't said or are not, are not done. I mean, the nonverbal cues and things that are being said. I think I, I am looking at somebody and, and do they carry, how do they carry themselves? Um, do they have confidence, but uh, do they have humility mixed in with that confidence? I think that's, that's really important. People want to follow somebody that they can trust and respect. And it's hard to trust somebody that their head's so big, they can't get through the door. Um, and so that's really important to me. But I said this the other day, you know, you get to a 70% solution, and then you go with your gut. And so obviously, I look at those things. But I, most of the time, after about five minutes, I, I, I have come close to a decision. And most of the time, I've been right. I've been wrong. At, I have been. And, and I think everybody has been. But fairly quickly, I interviewed this uh, young, right out of school nurse practitioner today. She was nervous as heck. Meet with the big boss. Yeah. And we, we just had a conversation. And what I'm really trying to figure out is, you know, I'll let this, the chief medical officer and others figure out the clinical side, right? She's got to go through that whole process of licensing and credentialing. I'm trying to find out, and, and this is what I told her, I'm trying to find out her character. And is she a good team player? And, or is she just going to, is she going to treat people poorly or treat them well? We all have bad days. I'm talking about trends here, systemic people that are just not kind and compassionate to one another. And, and if you can find those right people, then that's really going to help your culture. And so one, another thing that we've really started early on when I came in is we're not, we're not just taking a warm body to fill a position. We, we will go with it vacant for months, for years, because you're just going to create more problems than what you already have with the vacant position. And so that's kind of our mentality. And uh, it seems to be working pretty good at, at this point in time. Yeah. So you bring up culture. What is what kind of organizational culture are you trying to build at at Memorial? How much of that, and how much of that is your responsibility as the as the president? Yeah. Well, I st- steal quotes from people from successful people, and you know the quote about culture each uh, strategy for breakfast every day or something along those lines, right? And what it just means is you can have all the strategy in the world for your organization, the best strategy, the best people that are strategic. But if your culture is awful, it doesn't matter how good your strategy is because the, the, the people are going to be the ones that execute that strategy. And if you got good people, you're, you, you might have a less than perfect strategy, but they're going to get it done. Yeah. Because hard workers, they're dedicated, they're motivated, they love their organization, they, they love each other. And uh, that's something you and I saw many times in the Army. That's why we're the best Army in the world, because we indoctrinated people to be that way. We do a good job with growing character and leaders and uh, all those things. So I think it's, it's very much my responsibility there's a couple things that I say. I said, you know, I, I expect everybody uh, to come to work each day uh, to do your job, find ways to, to do your job better each day and uh, treat others. And I know it's a cliche and I say this, treat others how you want to be treated. 
And I've told this to many different type, uh, many different groups to include physicians and nurses and the, the you know the higher educated people is I, I say I don't really care what's to the right of your name. And then I pause and I said, well, I care what's to the right of your name. If you're a nurse, you better have an RN. If you're in, if you're doing surgery, you better have an MD and have been to, through a surgical residency. But as far as us being a team, I don't really care because at the end of the day, nobody's going to really care what I did for a living. They're just going to care about how Art Matheson treated them on a daily basis. And, and life is too short to, to think any other way. And that's the way I have gone about this. Every place I've gone, I sat down with my, my leaders that report to me, and I, I basically say something similar to that. But the other thing that I say, and I firmly believe this, is as a servant leader and as an administrator, we are all here for the patient. The patient is the nucleus of everything we do. But who's able to care for the patient? The nurse, the physician, the nurse practitioner, on and on. And so without them, I don't have a reason to exist. A lot of us don't have a reason to exist. And, you know, I've really, I've really angered people by saying that uh, in the past. And that, to me, they just got to get over themselves. Um, it's, it's not an ego thing. It's, I decided I wanted to be a CEO. I got there. Uh, um, I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity and humbled by it on a daily basis, but that's what I chose. If I want to go to medical school, then I go to medical school. This is my role, but without Dr. Potter, my good friend, that's a GI doc and the nurses that support him and the other techs that support him. I don't, I don't have, a, I don't have a job. And I remember that on a regular basis, and I think that keeps me on the right path, the straight and narrow path that I need to be on as a leader, to be confident, but not to be too full of myself. And maybe that's just the way my parents, you know, cuffed me upside the head when I was young, when I was getting too cocky as a youngster. I don't know. But I feel like that that's kept my, my azimuth pointing in the right direction over the years, if, if that makes sense. So, uh, as you know, I teach in a undergraduate program uh, yeah. down here at UNH, and uh, we teach young folks who want to be healthcare administrators. So, what advice would you? So, in in conclusion, what advice would you have for our, my my young students getting ready to graduate and and begin their career in in healthcare administration? Don't think you're going to get out and make it make a hundred thousand dollars a year <laughs> starting out. Okay, just uh, uh, that. You know, I think too many of our of our young, younger generations that that's that's the the, the goal. Um, I I think that the the important thing is, yeah, you want a good job with with, with good good salary and good benefits, but you got to look uh, at the organization when you interview and not just focus on that. You got you got to get a feel for what their culture is, what their leadership is like. The, to the best of your ability, or you, you're just not going to be happy, even if the pay is really good. And then you're going to end up going someplace else. And then I think you try uh, to find uh, good leaders, whether they're your formal leader that you report to, or other leaders in the organization that can coach, and teach, and mentor you 
and help you move forward in your career. I would not be without where I am today without the, the many, many leaders, not just administrators, but physicians and nurses and other specialists in the, in the healthcare community that have mentored me. So find that. Um, and then I really find that the, the American College of Healthcare Executives, you know, I joined when I was a young administrator and I was like, you know, a more senior person said, you should join. It's good. Um, but I can tell you, it's how I found my last three jobs to include this one. Yeah. And they have great courses. I, I read their articles periodically that come to me. It's a really first class organization. And uh, being a fellow now for many, many years, it means something. It, it means that you have gotten to a, a higher level than, than many other people in, in your profession. And uh, I would highly recommend that as early as, as they can. Well, Art, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. It's been great. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.